Well, if you've been with us last few uh, weeks, you know we've been going through the Gospel of John, looking at the signs of Jesus. Specifically, John was the youngest of the 12 disciples, and, and he's credited for writing his Gospel, the Gospel of John. And, and the first 11 chapters, he talks about seven signs that Jesus done, did, seven signs that point to the divinity of Jesus. In fact, every modern English translation is real careful to make sure that we know that, that these signs, the, the Greek word is semion. The word, every time the word semion is used, it, it can also be translated as miracles. But for John, these are signs because a sign, well, it communicates something. It points to something greater. It's not just a miracle. It was a, a sign that Jesus did. Seven signs before he went to Jerusalem ultimately to be crucified and raised on the third day, which was the eighth sign. Well, speaking of signs that communicate something, uh, recently this week I was doing a little research on church signs, and I found some pretty clever church signs I'd like to share with you this morning. I thought it were pretty funny. Uh, church sign number one here, it's uh, from St. Paul United Church of Christ. Best sausage supper in St. Louis. Come and eat, Pastor Thomas Ressler. <coughs> I think they're missing a comma. I'm not sure, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh, n- number two is from a Baptist church. Choose the bread of life or you are toast. <laughs> Baptists have a way with words, right? I mean, that's, wow. I mean, we talk about hell, but we're not going to tell anyone they're going there. I mean, that's kind of strict. Wow, it's pretty tough. Church sign number three. I love this one. Do you know what hell is? Come hear our preacher. <laughs> that, that's why we don't have a sign like that in our church. You just never know how people are going to post it or how it's going to be read. It's a lot of trouble there. Church sign number four, it's from a Methodist church. Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> I'm confused. Are, is the church going to kill me if the worries don't? I don't know. Finally, this last one uh, from another Methodist church trying to be creative with their advertising. Come here, our pastor. He's not very good, but he's quick. <laughs> and that's why we don't have a sign out front. You just never know what people are going to put out on the sign. Yeah, our church doesn't have a sign you can post on. However, uh, you may have noticed on I-40, uh, we have rented uh, a digital uh, billboard, and we've got this sign, First Presbyterian Church, there's a place for you here. And, uh, you know, we're doing this as a part of a campaign to help people know that our church doesn't just have a traditional worship service like this one, which is great, and Norman and the choir do a great job leading us every Sunday. And, and of course, recently in the news, it's become known that we have the largest, most dynamic church, uh, organ Thanks to Norman's hard work and, and, of course, the generosity of the Allison family, we have the largest and most dynamic organ from Fort Worth to Los Angeles. But as a part of that, we didn't want the city of Amarillo to think that we were just a traditional church. We do have a gospel service at 8.30 or a contemporary worship at 11.05. No matter what's your musical preference, uh, we have a worship service for you. Now, we don't have rap, but nobody else in town has rap, so we're going to keep with these three styles of worship. But... Uh, one way, too, and, and of course in this uh, new 21st century, there's a lot of ways to invite a friend to church. And one way you can help us invite a friend to church is to go to the Facebook page of the church's webpage, and you can share this image on your Facebook page so others can get that invitation. Say, hey, come join me. I go to the 11 a.m. traditional service. Love to have you at First Pres. There's a place for you here. That's a great way to help share this ad to let people know. And then we know, we know that you know, an advertisement or a billboard is not going to necessarily lead people flooding into your sanctuary. But it creates brand awareness. It helps people know that what our church offers and who we're about. We're not just a a traditional church that has a beautiful sanctuary for weddings. We're a church that has dynamic worship of all styles, gospel, traditional, and contemporary. We'd love for people to come and join us on a Sunday morning. Signs are important. 
signs communicate a message. In order for us to understand the signs of Jesus and the message that Jesus is trying to communicate to us, I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It may be found on page 1132 of your Red Pew Bible, John chapter 5. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you're the God who inspired John to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today, so that you might communicate to us, so that we might clearly hear from you. God, we pray that by your spirit, you would continue to speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that might be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and And told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had hardly already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Notice that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't go to the temple. He goes to the pool where the sick, the invalid, the the paralyzed, the blind, where they're all congregating, hoping that they might be healed. 
And when Jesus gets to this pool, he goes and finds the man who, who probably is one of the most sick people. He's been an invalid for 38 years. Now, why do you think John makes the point to tell us that it was 38 years that this man has been paralyzed, unable to walk? What's the significance of 38 years? We have to remember that John wrote his gospel to Jews living in the first century, living in a Greek context. And any first century Jew who would have read that it was 38 years that this man has been an invalid would have been reminded of how it was 38 years that the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness until they came again to the edge of the promised land a second time. For we read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, Moses reminds the people and says, And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. Now, you may remember from your Sunday school days or your study of the Exodus story that after God delivers the people of Israel from the evil hand of Pharaoh by parting the Red Sea and allowing them to walk on dry ground and then, and then allowing the sea to drown Pharaoh's army, the people of Israel head on eventually to the promised land. And when they get to the edge of the promised land for the first time, Moses sends 12 spies to go and check out the promised land to see if it's as great as they said it was. Well, these 12 spies come back and, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, man, this is great. God has delivered us a great land. But the other 10 of those 12 spies are very scared. And they say, oh, the people of the promised land are like giants. We look like grasshoppers compared to them. There's no way that we can go into the promised land. There's no way that God could deliver us this time. And their lack of faith, their disobedience, their unwillingness to follow God's call makes God so upset that he says, this, this generation of fighting men must pass away before a next generation rises up before I will give you the promised land. So for 38 years, the people of Israel, because of their sin, because of their lack of faith, must wander into the wilderness until they return to the edge of the promised land again. It was 38 years that the people had to wander because of their sin. And it was 38 years that this man was paralyzed because of his sin. Now we know from the Bible that Uh, paralysis, illness, sickness, blindness is not always a result of sin. But in this particular story, in this particular instance, it seems as if it was this man's sin somehow that led him to be paralyzed. For we read in John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The implication is that somehow 38 years ago, he did something that led to this paralysis. But, But we know throughout the Bible that well, it's not always our sin that, that causes uh, disease. Job, you know, was, was cursed not because of anything Job did, but because sometimes bad things happen to good people. In John 9 that we'll look to in, in a few weeks, you can see that, well, Jesus heals a man who was born blind at birth. It wasn't the man's fault that he was blind. No, paralysis and illness is not always our fault. But sometimes our sin has consequences, and sometimes our, our sin can lead to disease. Reminds me, when I was in college, um, I was in this first-year seminar class at, at Trinity University. Uh, Lisa and I, we went there at different times, but yeah, Lisa Durrett and I went to Trinity University. We had this first-year seminar class where they had us read books on the most controversial topics of the day. And we were supposed to read the books and then discuss the books and take a position on, on one way or the other, what we felt. And we were supposed to write a paper um, you know, defending our position. Well, 
that time in the, in the early 90s, uh, AIDS was an epidemic that was plaguing our country and much of the world. And so we read a book on, the, on AIDS, this sexually tr- transmitted disease at the time. And at that time, Magic Johnson, who's an NBA basketball player, Hall of Fame player, had come out as HIV positive. And so we were discussing how AIDS was spreading and what could we do to help stop the spread of AIDS. And as the conversation continued, me and my you know, naive West Texas manner spoke up and said, well, you know, if Magic Johnson had simply followed the, the sexual ethic of the Bible and, and remained a virgin until he got married and wasn't as promiscuous, he wouldn't have HIV AIDS. In fact, his teammate, A.C. Green, is a Christian. And well, A.C. Green has vowed to remain a virgin until he gets married following the sexual ethic of the Bible. And so it seems like we, if we all followed the sexual ethic of the Bible and, and waited until marriage to have sex, then, well, then there wouldn't be this disease spreading so rapidly. You could have heard a pin drop after I said that comment. People looked at me like I was from Mars. I was crazy. And I looked at them thinking, haven't you ever been to church? You know, and as I sat there wondering uh, their response to me, uh, finally the teacher spoke up and said, well, Howard, you're probably right, but nobody wants to do that anymore. Sad commentary in our culture. Yes, in our world today, our sin has consequences. And in this man's case, specifically in this case, It was something this man did 38 years ago that led to this paralysis. That's why Jesus says to him, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now what could be worse than paralysis? In the first century, what could be worse than paralysis for a paraplegic living in the in a, a pretty miserable life. They did not have motorized uh, wheelchairs. They did not have ADA-compliant buildings. They did not have handicapped restrooms. In fact, in the, in the first century, if you were a paraplegic, you were dependent on someone else to take you where you needed to go. And so paraplegics would often have to sit within their own excrement because they had no one to take them to the bathroom. This paraplegic in the pool was restricted to a life on a mat. It was dependent on others to take him where he needed to go. And it's apparent from his initial response to Jesus' question that he has no one to take him where he needs to go. He really doesn't have a a lot of friends. That's why he says in verse 7 of our text this morning, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. The first century was every man for himself. And this man was losing He was losing every day. He could never get to the pool in time for healing. He had no one to help him. He was all alone. Have you ever felt like you're all alone? Like no one can really relate to the the pain you're going through or the struggles you're you're trying to, to get through? Ever felt like you were alone, like nobody could truly understand? I remember right after college, um, I worked for Price Waterhouse Coopers, and I was in Tampa Bay, Florida, and uh, going through their training program. And we were working really late hours, and, and that was in November of '96. And in May of '96, when I graduated from college, you know, I had this college girlfriend. We had dated much of college, and and kind of the game plan gra- after graduation was that she was going to spend a year doing a, a year-long internship working with inner-city children in, in Hollywood, California, and then after that, we would we would get married. And so that was kind of the game plan. But but as we were Literally from one coast to the next, you know, we, we weren't connecting that well. I was working crazy hours. In November of 96, she, she broke up with me, and I was, I was devastated. And then, then a day later, my grandmother died, and I was, like, devastated yet again. And, and I really wasn't enjoying my job. I felt all alone, living in a city where I knew no one, and I felt like nobody could really relate or understand the pain I was going through. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're all alone? Like you have no one? This paraplegic in the 
by the pool feels like that. He's got no one. But the good news of our text and the good news for this man is that he has Jesus. Jesus seeks him out, this man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. And he comes up to him and he asks him, do you want to be healed? That's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Do you want to be healed? The man is sitting at the pool. He's been there every day. He's waiting to try and get in. So hoping that with the stirring of the water, somehow he might receive a miracle as other people seem to have. Of course the man wants to be healed. Why does Jesus ask this man, do you want to be healed? Surely he wants to be healed, right? Or does he? We can see from verse 14 of our text that this man's paralysis is a result of his sin. Afterward, after he'd healed the man, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The only way this man can continue to experience the healing touch of Jesus is if he will resist the sin, the temptation that brought him there in the first place. He must continue to to walk in God's way. He must avoid the sin, whatever it was that led him to this paralysis, whatever that sin was. Have you ever felt like you were paralyzed by sin, as, as if there was no way that you could overcome the temptation, whatever that besetting sin is? There's, there's certain sins that we find we tend to repeat time and time and time again, and we, we pray a prayer of confession, and, and we ask God to help us, but then, but then a week later, we're doing the same thing. Have you ever had a, a besetting sin, something that you find you repeat time and, and time again? You know, anyone who's wrestled with addiction knows what I'm talking about. You know that you're not supposed to drink, and yet you do anyway. You know that you shouldn't do drugs, but you find you're doing them anyway. You know you shouldn't overeat, but you find that you continue to do so. You know you should stop looking at pornography, but you continue to do so. You know you should stop gossiping, but you can't keep from doing it. You know you should stop judging others, but you find you are quick to judge others. You know you should stop worrying and becoming anxious, but you find that you're constantly worried about something. You know you should stop consuming more than you really need, looking to stuff to make you happy, but you you find you keep buying even though you can't afford it. Yes, we all have besetting sins, sins that we tend to to lean into, that we tend to fall back on, things that we keep doing even though we know we shouldn't, that they're not good for us. And so the man is asked by Jesus, do you want to be healed? Do we want to be healed? Do we want to be healed from these besetting sins, these things that can draw us away from God? Do we want to grow in our relationship with God in such a way that we are no longer tempted by those things that tend to draw us away from God? Well, if we really want to be healed, if we want to be able to overcome those besetting sins, we've got to come to Jesus in in such a way that we're fully surrendered to Him. We can't just pay lip service to Him. We've got to come to Him in, in full confession, in full recognition of who He is, But notice in our text this morning that this man doesn't really know who Jesus is. Jesus heals him without a knowledge of who Jesus is. He just tells him boldly, get up, take your bed and walk. Get up, take your bed and walk. This paralyzed man doesn't know who Jesus is. In fact, later he's asked, who healed you? Who told you to take up your mat? And he says, I don't know. I'll go find out. He didn't need faith to be healed. Our healing isn't dependent upon our faith. It's dependent on the power of God. God's powerful words are what ultimately heal this man. Get up, take your bed, and walk. And miraculously, 
Despite the years of atrophy, despite the fact that he hadn't walked in 38 years, he must have felt his legs becoming strengthened in that moment. And so he stood up and and got up and walked and, and carried his mat. Yes, this man does what Jesus tells him to do, and he begins to walk into a new life, grateful for Christ's healing touch. If we want to truly be healed, we need to do as Jesus tells us to do. As Mary said a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the water, turning water into wine, Mary tells the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Do whatever Jesus tells you. If you want to truly be healed, if you want to walk in the new life that Jesus came to bring to us, we've, we've got to humble ourselves and, and recognize our need for help and, and then come to Jesus and then do whatever he tells us to do. In fact, by carrying this mat, later this man gets in trouble with the Jewish officials because, well, as he read just a moment ago, there were real strict rules about the Sabbath. In fact, in the first century, they'd come up with 39 specific things you were not supposed to do on the Sabbath and carrying Anything from one place to another was one of those things. He was breaking the 39th rule that the Jews had created. He is following Jesus, doing what Jesus tells us to do, does not mean that life's going to be easy. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, because you follow me, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. We are going to find freedom in following Jesus. And doing whatever he tells us. We're going to find the abundant life that Christ came to bring in doing what Jesus tells us to do. When Jesus tells us to forgive, we should forgive. Then we'll be freed from anger and resentment. When Jesus tells us to love those who persecute us, to love our enemies, well then we need to love, remembering how much he first loved us. When Jesus says pray, we need to pray so that we might give our cares and concerns to God so that he might carry them. Yes, we need to do what Jesus tells us to do if we hope to have true freedom. Freedom from those besetting sins that can seek to control us if we're not careful. Notice that Jesus heals this man again before he ever tells him to stop sinning. Jesus invites us to come to him as we are We don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. Jesus says, no, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In fact, the more messed up we are, the more Jesus wants to heal us. That's why Jesus goes to the pool where all the broken and hurting people are. For Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people who are poor in spirit are the ones who are desperate, who've lost all hope. This man for 38 years has been trying to get in that pool to be healed, and he's desperate. He's poor in spirit, and Jesus heals him. Now, as a recipient of God's grace, as one who has been healed by God, Jesus tells him, sin no more. Seek to live a life in obedience and gratitude for what God has already done for you. And that's true for us today, too. In gratitude for all that God has done for us, we should seek to to, to honor God and honor his sacrifice. For, For Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, obeying every law so that when He died on the cross, He was the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins together. Then on the third day, He rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf so that we could have the assurance of eternal life, so that we could have the gift of a new life if we simply believe in Him. As Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
So in gratitude for, for his great sacrifice, in gratitude for his great love, we want to be obedient. We want to live as a, as a new creation, no longer bound by sin or controlled by the sinful nature, but rather guided by the Spirit, bearing fruits of the Spirit, like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yes, we are, through faith in Christ, a new creation. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new, all, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It's been given to us as a gift through faith in him. And once we believe in Jesus, we are told that the Holy Spirit now comes into our lives and our body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. So that if we will follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit, if we will obey the words of Jesus, then we will begin to, to naturally bear these fruits of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the, the, the temptations of this world will be less appealing as we seek to obey and follow Christ. But we've got to sow to the Spirit if we hope to bear the fruits of the Spirit. So how do we do that exactly? How can we make sure that we sow to the Spirit so that we bear fruits of the Spirit? When Jesus was on this earth, he invites his disciples. He says, come follow me. And for three years, his disciples followed Jesus. And if you read the Gospels closely, you'll see that constantly Jesus is getting away to be alone with his heavenly Father in prayer and meditation and silence and solitude. There were certain spiritual practices that Jesus did, and and he was training his disciples on how to do that. That's why he gives them the Lord's Prayer, to to teach them how to pray. So if we hope to sow to the Spirit, then we need to do what Jesus did. We need to practice certain spiritual disciplines. And if any one of us has a besetting sin that, that tends to plague us, that we find that we tend to do time and time and time again, well, there's a spiritual practice that we can do to help counter that sin. For instance, let's say gossip is, is the sin that we find that we, we continue to do time and, and time again. Well, if gossip is the sin that you find you're doing time and time again, then, well, then practice the spiritual discipline of, of silence. If we wrestle with envy or greed, well, then we should practice the spiritual discipline of simplicity and go through our clothes closet and give away things that we don't really wear, really need, and, and practice simplicity and giving focused on Christ and his kingdom alone. If we wrestle with an addiction to food or alcohol or drugs, we should practice fasting and prayer, turning to God for strength to help us overcome the temptations. For Paul tells us that we will not be tempted. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but he will provide a way out, and that way out is the Holy Spirit. If we will lean into the Spirit's strength, if we will come to God and ask for his deliverance to give us the discipline we need to, to resist for in 2 Timothy 1, 7, we read that God does not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. As for the greatest result in these spiritual practices, though, we should do them in community. 
We should practice meditation on scripture and prayer and in fellowship with other Christians so that we might pray for each other, so that we might encourage one another, so that we might hold one another accountable to, to walk in the ways of Christ, doing what he tells us to do so that we can be freed from the power of sin. Do we want to be healed? If we want to be healed, then we need to turn to the words of Jesus. We need to practice the spiritual disciplines that Jesus did. We need to do what Jesus tells us to do. And and not in isolation, but rather in community. Practicing these disciplines, prayer and meditation on God's word and study and fellowship and, and worship. Just as the earliest church did. So that we might naturally bear the fruits of the spirit of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And therefore point to Jesus' reign in our lives. So that as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, others may see our good deeds and give praises to our Father who is in heaven. May we seek to do all that Jesus tells us to do. By walking in his ways. By doing what he did. By practicing these spiritual disciplines in a way that we might sow to the Spirit so that we might bear the fruits of the Spirit and be freed from the fruits of the flesh. Let's pray. God, you ask this man, does he want to be healed? And as we read this text, we have to ask ourselves that same question. Do we want to be healed? Do we want to be freed from the powers of sin and death? Oh God, we know that by your Spirit, you give us the strength to resist the temptations of this world, the besetting sins that tend to plague us, Lord. But we know that We cannot do it alone. We need your strength. We need to surrender our lives to you. And we need to find community where we can do these things together, where we can do the things of Jesus, that we can follow and walk in your ways, practice these spiritual disciplines so that we might sow to the Spirit and bear the fruits of the Spirit so that you might receive all the glory and praise. Oh God, help us to walk according to your Spirit each and every day. Your son's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Really need and practice simplicity and giving focused on Christ and His kingdom alone. If we wrestle with an addiction to food or alcohol or drugs, we should practice fasting and prayer, turning to God for strength to help us overcome the temptations. For Paul tells us that we will not be tempted, God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but He will provide a way out, and that way out is the Holy Spirit. If we will lean into the Spirit's strength, if we will come to God and ask for His deliverance to give us the discipline we need to, to resist. For in 2 Timothy 1 7, we read that God does not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self discipline. As for the greatest result in these spiritual practices, though, we should do them in community. We should practice meditation on scripture and prayer and and, in fellowship with other Christians so that we might pray for each other, so that we might encourage one another, so that we might hold one another accountable to, to walk in the ways of Christ, doing what he tells us to do so that we can be freed from the power of sin. Do we want to be healed? If we want to be healed, then we need to turn to the words of Jesus. We need to practice the spiritual disciplines that Jesus did. We need to do what Jesus tells us to do. And and not in isolation, but rather in community. Practicing these disciplines, prayer and meditation on God's word and study and fellowship and, and worship. Just as the earliest church did. So that we might naturally bear the fruits of the spirit of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self control. And therefore point to Jesus' reign in our lives. 
so that as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, others may see our good deeds and give praises to our Father who's in heaven. May we seek to do all that Jesus tells us to do by walking in his ways, by doing what he did, by practicing these spiritual disciplines in a way that we might sow to the Spirit so that we might bear the fruits of the Spirit and be freed from the fruits of the flesh. Let's pray. God, you ask this man, does he want to be healed? And as we read this text, we have to ask ourselves that same question. Do we want to be healed? Do we want to be freed from the powers of sin and death? Oh God, we know that by your spirit, you give us the strength to resist the temptations of this world, the besetting sins that tend to plague us, Lord. But we know that we cannot do it alone. We need your strength. We need to surrender our lives to you. And we need to find community where we can do these things together, where we can do the things of Jesus, that we can follow and walk in your ways, practice these spiritual disciplines so that we might sow to the Spirit and bear the fruits of the Spirit so that you might receive all the glory and praise. Oh God, help us to walk according to your Spirit each and every day. In your son's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.